For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson with a hello to our friends in New York and a sleep-inducing look at the IPCC's latest brick, Climate Change 2022, Mitigation of Climate Change, also known as the Working Group 3 component of its sixth assessment report. As these things will, it includes a brief, well, 64-page summary for policymakers and a 145-page technical summary because not even the author's mothers are going to read the full 2,913-page doorstopper. But before you rush out and download it, let's play a little game. Close your eyes and imagine what journalists were saying it said within hours of its appearance last week before they'd had time to read it either. Nope, not, we're all going to die. That messaging, they've discovered, encourages people to give up. So instead, this report takes a comparatively cheery tack. Basically, we still have one last chance to save the planet, honest we do, for real this time, but only if, as usual, you give a lot more money and power to politicians. There. We saved you having to read the rest. We're also going to save you from having to read the news coverage, which is quite unlike the report in every way except that it's also tediously predictable. Both the full report and the alleged summary are typographically strange documents that start with footnotes embedded in the main text and don't really summarize anything. It quite literally starts like this. A. Introduction and framing, slash. The Working Group 3, bracket WG3, bracket contribution to the IPCC 6th assessment report, bracket AR6, bracket, assesses literature on the scientific, technological, environmental, economic, and social aspects of mitigation of climate change. Square bracket, capitals, footnote 1, square bracket. Levels of confidence, square bracket, footnote 2, square bracket, are given in curved brackets. Numerical ranges are presented in square brackets, References to chapters, sections, figures, and boxes in the underlying report and technical summary bracket, TS bracket, are given in squiggly brackets, end quote. As an opening line, it isn't call me Ishmael or in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth or even I dropped to one knee and fired twice. And if the purpose of the first page is to tell readers where they're going, it's apparently to bed with a headache. Journalists instead rushed to computers with a consensus. The report was actually due on Friday, April 1st, but appeared some 40 hours late on Monday, April 4th. And within hours, the Associated Press wire service hollered, and Flipboard repeated, quote, UN warns Earth firmly on track toward an unlivable world, end quote. A phrase that, you may well not be surprised to learn, is nowhere in the actual report. It is, rather, another pithy line from UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres about another bloated report he hadn't read delivered to journalists who hadn't read it either. The New York Times came up with stopping climate change is doable, but time is short, UN panel warns, end quote, and their email teaser to that story said, quote, nations must move much faster to avoid a perilous future on an overheated planet, though some progress has been made, a major UN report said, end quote. And of course, the actual report did not contain one single instance of the word perilous, let alone overheated. So why bother reading it, if they even did? Robinson, mayor of the Atlantic, who recently gave us the helpful news that a nuclear war would be bad for the climate, said, quote, If most IPCC reports present a warning, this week's is more of a how-to-avoid-the-apocalypse guide. Quote. So naturally, the phrase that he put in quotation marks was nowhere to be found in the report. And so on, and so on. Now, anyone who did try to read it will know that many of the claims in the new report are buttressed with the phrase, medium confidence. And if you were a policymaker in a hurry, or a concerned citizen, you'd want to know what that term means, though you'd assume that it means fairly confident. 
If you had medium confidence in winning a bet, you know, be somewhere maybe halfway between a coin toss and dead certainty. But for the IPCC, medium confidence is a coin toss. It's equidistant for them between very low and very high confidence. And good luck nailing it down further, because nowhere in the report, or even in the separate glossary when we tracked it down, is the term defined. Whereas a separate in-house guide for IPCC authors makes it even worse, telling us, quote, For a given evidence and agreement statement, different confidence levels could be assigned. Confidence should not be interpreted probabilistically and is distinct from statistical confidence. End quote. In short, it means nothing and is hurled about indiscriminately. And now, a word from our sponsor. And that's you. Or at least it should be. Because if you want us to keep annoying the right people with our newsletters and our videos, you, our regular viewers, need to step up with a one-time or monthly contribution. I'm not talking a lot of money, unless you're, like, extra rich. The price of a cup of coffee a month. That's what we need from the 10,000 or so people who tune in weekly. If you do that, the video and the newsletter will keep bringing sanity to the climate debate and to you. And now, back to me. Mind you, as The Economist incautiously allowed, the drafting of the latest report that went into overtime was all about messaging. And it's striking that the mainstream press, famous in their own minds for critiquing the rich and powerful, all seem to have gotten the same messaging memo and been happy to read from it. Neither doom nor complacency, but optimistic urgency. Hence The Guardian's quote, The new IPCC report offers not only hope, but practical solutions. Governments that have signed off on it must now act, end quote. The New York Times took a similar tack, so did Gavin Schmidt and the man himself, Michael Mann, as did the Albuquerque Journal, and just about everybody else, which for some reason gives the impression not of vigorous independent thought, but of its habitual absence on this file. Mind you, we were a bit surprised to hear, in the midst of the thunderous sound of foreheads hitting desks as people tried to read the new Working Group 3 report, that Canada's former Environment Minister Catherine McKenna's return to private life involves becoming chair of a new UN panel on climate change. And if you're thinking, what, another one? Or why do we need a new one when the UN just said that its IPCC has handed down the last word on what's going on and what to do about it? Well, you don't know those people at the UN like we do. The vital purpose of this new group is to blame companies for being both evil and crooked on climate. So, if you're one of those corporations who thought that their groveling ESG and net zero plans would turn their enemies into their friends, the 16 high-profile members of this group, including a longtime governor of the People's Bank of China, have news for you. You've already been convicted of greenwashing. Trial to follow. Get a rope. On a different and more realistic note, Matt Ridley in the Daily Mail wails that, quote, the way wind power has managed to get politicians and others to think it is uniquely virtuous will deserve close study by future theologians, end quote. Ridley's all for an inhabitable planet, but he points out that wind power actually supplied a feeble under 4% of total UK primary energy demand in 2020. That's right, he says, quote, all those vast wind farms in the North Sea or disfiguring the hills of Wales and Scotland give us little more than one-thirtieth of the energy we need to light and heat our homes, power our businesses, or move our cars and trains. Just think what this country and its seas would look like if we relied on wind for one-third or half of our energy needs, end quote. Despite that, he adds, quote, the wind industry has already been fattened on subsidies of more than six billion pounds a year, end quote. 
And he asks, quote, why, to the exclusion of all else, in particular fracking and nuclear energy, has arguably the most inefficient solution been privileged? Hundreds of these monsters are required to produce as much electricity as one small gas-powered plant. In terms of land covered, wind takes 700 times as much space to generate the same energy as one low-rise shale gas pad. It's not as if wind turbines are good for the environment. They kill thousands of birds and bats every year, often rare eagles on land and soaring gannets at sea. If you were even to disturb a bat when adding a conservatory, you could end up in jail, end quote. There's more where these quotations came from, and we recommend you check them out. As you should also check out Craig D. Idso's new series on Master Resource, a free market energy blog, in which he argues that CO2 provides enormous benefits that should be taken into account even by people who believe that it also carries significant costs. Not that mentioning trade-offs will make you popular, but it will make you wiser. This week's newsletter also brings the second installment of our CDN by the Sea series, this time visiting Victoria, B.C. on the southern tip of Vancouver Island, capital of the Canadian province of British Columbia. Frankly, it's what passes for a warm-weather holiday destination in this country. And when you see this chart of its annual mean sea level rise since 1980, you'll understand why the B.C. government has long been in the vanguard of climate alarmism in Canada. Or not. Because over the past 40 years, sea levels in Victoria have risen by about 0.26 millimeters a year, at which rate it will take about 3,830 years to rise one meter. And that means over the next 100 years, it'll rise by about 2.6 centimeters, which being interpreted means one inch. Some seawall that's going to require. And by the way, as always for this series, our data source is the permanent service for mean sea level located in Liverpool in the United Kingdom. In the newsletter, we also continue our look at the new peer-reviewed paper by Professor Nicholas Scafetta of the University of Naples Department of Earth Sciences, looking at the latest generation of global climate models. And it's not encouraging if you're hoping the models were accurate, though it is encouraging if you're hoping there's no crisis, because while the models all did pretty badly at reproducing the spatial pattern of global warming around the Earth over the past 40 years, again, failing the open book test, the ones that did best on the overall global temperature trend are the ones that say that CO2 causes relatively little warming. Phew. No crisis. The alarmists will be happy, won't they? Meanwhile, we present another item from the CO2Science.org archive, a paper prompted by what was then the latest IPCC assessment report, commenting that, quote, Northeastern Canada is poorly represented among existing millennial temperature reconstructions in the Northern Hemisphere, end quote. So these researchers went after oxygen isotopes from tree rings around a lake so remote that it's just called Lake L20. And guess what? They found evidence of, quote, a warm period during the 11th and 12th centuries that corresponds to the well-known medieval warm period, and a cold period extending from the early 15th century through the end of the 19th century, representing the Little Ice Age, end quote. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and we told you so.